I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, we're so excited because today we're talking to Mary Jane Rubenstein, a professor of religion and science and society at Wellesleyan University and the author of the new book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. So thank you so much for sharing your time and coming on the podcast today. Of course. I'm so happy to be here. So maybe we could just start like a bit about you and your background. Um, I'm just like really curious, like what got you, I guess, kind of choosing to study um, religious studies um, and, and, and science and society, especially, and then kind of how, how you came to this project of the corporate space race. Okay. Yes. I'll try to do those in order. Um, (laughs) So, uh, so I started studying religion in college, um, religious studies in college, sort of uh, academic approach to um, this thing that we sometimes incoherently call religion. Um, I think I liked it because it gave me a way to do philosophy, which is to say to like think big thoughts about, um, you know, where we've come from, where we're going, what we're supposed to do in the meantime, um, in a way that was like really tied to human beings and what they're concerned about. Um, that the, the the questions that religious studies answers um, and asks uh, tend to be the questions that like actual people in the world are concerned about. Um, so they're not simply abstract. They're often very abstract, but they're not simply abstract. You can always like tie them back to actual people and actual communities and actual concerns. Um, so I think that like, reli- again, religion gave me a way to do philosophy in a way that like made sense to me. Um, and I actually wasn't all that... I mean, I've always thought science was neat, but um, I didn't have any real um, like advanced training uh, in the sciences until well uh, into my my time teaching at Wesleyan. Um, I I was having these you know big conversations with students studying all these big things and with colleagues and with, and I sort of stumbled um, almost haphazardly uh, into uh, the phenomenon of dark energy. I'm sure you know what it is, but it's it's the uh, the the sort of pressure of empty space that is uh, seems to be causing the universe t- um, to accelerate its expansion faster and faster with each passing moment, really. Um, so it's like this runaway uh, negative pressure. Um, and I was just I, I I don't I was sort of taken by the way that physicists were talking about this substance. Um, first of all, it's called dark energy, which just sounds like some kind of um, combination of like myth and science fiction. Um, and but more, the, the the physicists were talking about it in this way that reflected like disgust, terror, horror, surprise in a like really creepy, gross slime kind of way. Um, and I was just struck by how um, the, the, like the existential level on which this discovery seemed to be hitting them. Um, and I started thinking like, wow, this is really interesting. Like there's something about um, what this does to the story of the universe that is freaking out even physicists, like even physicists who've been telling us forever, like, oh, I'm really sorry, the sun's going to explode. And they, they've been fine <laughs> with that. Like, oh, really sorry, like universe is going to die in heat death. And that was fine. But like this thing really freaked them out. Um And it was at that point that I realized that there were places at like the edges of the natural sciences um, where the sciences collide in these often beautiful and frightening and unexpected ways uh, with um, with religion, with mythology, with these like big questions that humans have been asking for a really long time about their origin, their ends, their purpose, things like that. Um, And so I just started, you know, chasing those things. And I've been 
since then looking out for the places that religion and the sciences again sort of like collide unexpectedly. And it's often when the sciences think that they're as far as humanly possible for, from religion, specifically from theology, that they like tumble into it in these sort of adorable ways. So you get to sort of <laughs> trace this comedy of manners um, between these disciplines. Um, the um, the space stuff I got to, honestly, again, I, I tend to fall into projects really haphazardly. I just sort of listen to conversations I'm having and then I can't stop thinking about them. And then suddenly I'm writing a book about it. Um, I, my cousin came over for dinner. I mean, it was like really, really like my cousin came for dinner. This is not like an allegory. This is like my actual cousin came for dinner. Um, and he uh, he was like, hey, have you heard this really cool thing about how the Japanese fashion designer who um, bought all the tickets on Elon Musk's rocket? Um, and this is Elon Musk's prospective BFR, his um, big effing rocket. Um, <laughs> And a uh, a fashion designer decided uh, he was he was auctioning off individual tickets, right? To say like buy a ticket for this thing, your money will help me finance the BFR, um, and when it's finally built, you will be able to um, take a trip like around the moon, like the one that Artemis One just took, right? Out around the moon and back. Um, and he was hoping to sell, you know, individual tickets to a bunch of billionaires. Um, and it turns out that one billionaire bought every ticket on this prospective rocket. Um, he bought every ticket on the prospective rocket. Nobody knows how much he bought it for. Every time anybody asks, they're both of them are like, it's a it's a lot of money, just like a ton of money. Um, nobody knows how much. And when asked why he did it, um, the designer said, look, first of all, I want to be the first, like the first civilian non-astronaut um to be on a rocket uh, near and around the moon um second of all i'm going to give all of the other seats away you know i'm going to i'll be there and then i'm going to give all the other seats away um to artists all sorts of different artists um like one to a fashion designer and one to a videographer and one to an installation artist and one to a video artist and one to a photographer um and the hope is that um when they get out beyond uh, the orbit of the Earth and are able to see that, you know, image of the Earth kind of entire. They say it's it's entire. It's not really entire. It's like one face of the Earth. But like for, to see the Earth as an object from beyond it, um, those artists will be so overawed by what they see that they might be compelled to um, create a piece of art that allows the rest of us to feel the feeling they are feeling. Um, and uh, the way he concluded was by saying, um, this all advances my my vision of world peace. And so my cousin is like, this guy, is, he's like using all of his wealth for peace. And I was like, wait, what? Like, how do you get from feeding Elon Musk maybe like, like millions and millions and millions of dollars to world peace, right? Um, and this is what got me um, interested in the uh, the history of space exploration, the way that um, on the one hand, it promises, you know, unification of the planet, unification of the species, like we're all, we realize that we're all one and we're all in this fragile ball floating in the nothingness of space. On the one hand, um, and the way that it encourages, uh, you know, military and nuclear one-upsmanship on the other. Um, so that was that was the path in. That's so fascinating. Um, I hadn't actually heard that story about the um, guy who bought all of all of the tickets, but every single one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that actually feeds in really nicely to my next question because. Um, you know, so uh, Jeff Bezos, as as you saw, oh God, this was like a year or so ago. You know, took his, you know, was the first CEO or whatever after Richard Branson to to go to space, and he took William Shatner, the the Star Trek actor, and um, it was only recently that William Shatner came out. I forget what what news organization he came out and said like that was the most depressing thing I've ever done in my life. Um, yeah. And and rather than being kind of like overawed at the majesty of space, in fact, he was like horrified to see yeah. like the empty nothingness and how how we're treating um, the planet, which Jeff Bezos definitely did not want him to have the takeaway. Yeah, he actually. So it I, I know that like this is it, it, it seems like the story's only hit now, but the minute. Shatner got back from space. This was what he was saying. Like the the camera went on him, and they were like, "Hey, William Shatner, what'd you think? You got to space?" And he was like, "I, I." And he started to cry a little bit. Um, and he said, "You know, you're just you're 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 being thrown up through the sky, through the atmosphere, and suddenly you get sort of ripped out of the atmosphere, and you see that 
there has been this blanket of blue and he uses this like this image of this blanket like we're being nurtured and warm right and it just gets absolutely ripped away and he's like and then there's there's nothing and the interviewer is like yeah isn't that cool he's like no 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 it's not cool he's like it you look down and you look at the earth and you realize like that's life and everything you've ever known and everything you've ever and like life itself and he points to like the cosmos and he's like and that's death and he's like is that life and that's death and Bezos is like hey man well it was pretty cool though wasn't it and he's like that's death and then somebody like takes a bottle of champagne shakes it and opens a cork so that it like sprays all over everybody and Shatner's like come on like I'm trying to explain this thing. like this was not awesome and on every morning show um he would go on and they'd be like hey Bill you made it into space and he was like we have to take care of our planet we have to steward our fragile earth there's nothing like this isn't this was not the overview effect right this was not the overview effect is the idea that you get out into space and then you realize like oh how gorgeous everything is but he was totally terrified and he's trying to tell everybody and the morning show hosts are like well nice to talk to you Bill glad you had so much fun up there and he's like I didn't have fun (laughs) so I'm really glad um that this is finally um you know, for what it's, I, I know all this because I, 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 like, I watched it and I wrote this op-ed piece and like nobody would take it because I think like nobody wanted to know that William Shatner didn't have a nice time, um, out, out in outer space. The like the poor guy. So I'm, I'm really glad that the message is hitting now, um, that people are finally hearing it, um, because if this person who has spent his entire life like dreaming about what it would be like to be in space, to travel through space, to be the captain of space, is suddenly like, oh, space is terrifying. Let's not be there. Um, we might want to listen. We might want to yeah. listen to that. Guy. Yeah. Um, I loved it because that's always been my reaction to space. It's like that sounds horrifying. I I will stay on like climate change catastrophe earth rather than get yeah. onto jeff bezos escape pods mm-hmm. um but i wonder so i was thinking is when i was reading the book you, you have a couple of different reactions which i thought were really interesting and i was thinking about william shatner in contact with them because you had um like during the ussr the the russian astronaut i think it was an astronaut who says you know they they um uh, succeeded in getting to space and said like hey like there's no god up here sort of like mm-hmm. humans humans did this and it was sort of like a triumph almost of like atheist secularism and science mm-hmm. um, versus and then you sort of compare that to like the American rhetoric around the cold war space race which was kind of more imbued with religious imagery and manifest destiny and then mm-hmm. we can even see that um reflected uh today with you know when you talk about like Mike Pence and Trump and how they talk about space mm-hmm. um Mike Pence in particular with his his religious imagery so I wonder like I in thinking you know in t- taking like a religious um approach to, to, to those uh or or did taking a religious approach to those reactions reveal something about kind of like how humans are or how different communities are reacting to to space? And um, that's not necessarily obvious if you're thinking about it, like, say, politically. Well, sometimes it is obvious when you're looking at it politically. So I think and I don't, I don't know that I've said this explicitly, but I think that um, religion is operating at at least two different levels here. Um, the first is this explicit level where the Russians are like, there's no God here. We are atheists and we have triumphed over the cosmos. And here we are. Hooray, USSR. Right. <laughs> um, whereas uh, the U.S. is saying, um, you know, look at what God has allowed us to do. God has allowed us to get up here and signified above all by um, Apollo 8, um, when they when they see the Earth sort of rising over the moon, um, they start uh, intoning the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth, and the Earth was formless and void. Um, this is a like a ritual repetition of the creation story that subtends uh, Jewish and Christian cosmology. And this is clearly a political move to say like, ha ha, you godless communists. Um, we and our God. And of course, the, like this God is a, like a pretty diminished God. This is like a God Americans call upon whenever they need to like a little rhetorical flourish or something like that. Right. But we and our God um, have have done this more, have done this better, have done this farther. Um, and just because you didn't see God out here doesn't mean that the hand of God hasn't been here. Of course, the hand of God has been here. Otherwise, we couldn't have gotten this far. Right. Otherwise, the U.S. couldn't have um, expanded the way it did during the 19th century across the continent and now up into space. Um, so there's that like 
just totally explicit God language. And you're talking about Mike Pence saying, you know, wherever we are, God's going to go with us. And he said, this is like 2019. We've got Donald Trump calling space manifest destiny. This is just like right there. And I think it's important to call attention to that and to say, like, it's not just um, empty rhetoric when the Apollo 8 astronauts recite Genesis. It's not just something to say, like, oh, well, you know, they thought it would sound nice or something like that. There's something there's like serious work going on there. And I think it's important to pay attention to that serious work that's going on there. On the other hand, <laughs> there's also um, religion operating in this more kind of subtle way, um, which is to say at the level of the the whole impetus behind the space programs themselves, um, and particularly as it's being um, like as the space programs are being like amplified um, and uh, um, excited uh, by by private industry, um, and the the line we're hearing there is that um, there is there is disaster coming for humanity or there's disaster coming for for Earth. Um, the end is near, as you may have heard sort of street prophets say. Um, and uh, so you should be afraid, but there is another way through. And if you only follow the lead of this particular techno prophet, um, you will be saved. You and your generations will gain immortality forever. Um, and that's a more sort of like broadly charismatic messianic religious line that doesn't necessarily depend upon the invocation of any like straightforwardly religious texts, but it's using this more like religious framework um, in order to make people feel really excited and good and um, uh, compelled right, by, by space exploration. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I, I love when you talk about that, Elon Musk, as, as a kind of religious figure. Um, I wonder, too, um, you didn't talk about this in the book, but I wonder, uh, I was thinking a lot about, like, now with, um, like, China attempting, you know, to to send rockets into, or, or succeeding, at sending rockets into space as well, whether, um, like, you know, because the book focuses on the kind of the Judeo-Christian underpinnings mm -hmm. of, like, the American space race, whether, like, Eastern religion then interacts with uh, like Chinese politics differently in in um, like that that context of space expansion. Well, so okay, um, I think um, again, you're you know, I I see things through the lens of religion. So like, even where things aren't religious, I <laughs> tend to say like, oh, I don't know, there's like something going on there. Right? Um, so I would argue that even the um, Russian, for example, declaration that like, there's no God here, long live the USSR, um, that there's like a nationalist religion at work there that is defined precisely through its like vehement atheism, right? Just because it's atheistic doesn't mean it doesn't have the structure of religion. And by having the structure of religion, I mean, it tells a number of um, like origin stories that are supposed to bind a people together under a larger purpose, right? To give them order and meaning and purpose in the universe that tells them what they're supposed to do and how they're sorry, that, that um, organizes the universe for them. This is the work of religion, whether or not it affirms um, the existence of a God. Um, and so in that sense, religion um, underwrites and um, augments the project of nationalism. So, um, yes, in that sense, um, I, I, I do not think it is it is certainly not the case that you can find like a, a robust Buddhist metaphysic behind um, the like Chinese launches. But you can definitely find a robust nationalist metaphysic um, that relies on um, not, you know, it's, it's a different kind of atheism from Soviet atheism, but it's got it's got that kind of structure. Um so that's that's the way I would start talking about that as you know nationalism as a as a as a kind of religion. Yeah. As nationalism. Yeah, that's so fascinating. The other thing that struck me where you're talking about, you know, religious um a religious structure, but not necessarily like spiritual or something religious at its center, um, was that the way uh, you know, the current American tech uh space would be space colonists talk about science fiction right mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. you know uh, the people when when musk is talking about space what he goes to is um uh douglas adams you know mm -hmm. same with um bezos and his like obsession with star trek um yep. so i wonder do, do you see or, or like how do you see the role of like science fiction and literature playing is that a kind of like mythology and then how does that kind of get get played out in terms of like their behaviors 
Yeah, I do think that for these, um, you know, tech billionaires, um, sort of astro tech billionaires, um, the science fiction canon becomes the like scriptural canon. It's that's the um, that's what they're drawing from. Um, as you may have noticed, you know, NASA names its rockets and its missions after Greek gods and goddesses. Um, Bezos and Musk tend to name them after heroes from Star Wars and Star Trek and Douglas Adams and right. Um, and uh, even that 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 car, that Tesla that Musk launched into orbit around the sun, um, yeah. that car has copies of Douglas Adams in the glove box. Right. In similar ways to um, NASA carrying copies of the Bible up in its its rockets. So I think that you can absolutely make a very straightforward, even boring argument that like science fiction and particularly science fiction in its like um, masculinist sort of world conquering genre. They're not bringing Ursula Le Guin up there. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, becomes the the sort of the, the new the new canon here. Um, and then what starts to happen is that you get this like recursiveness, this uh, that that science fiction sort of well, science <laughs> imagines and uh, encodes and decodes the world from us. Science fiction takes some of it, gets rid of some of it, sort of clears it away to imagine other possibilities. And then science comes back and says, like, what can we enact from those kinds of possibilities? Um, and so we are seeing, you know, with like with our cell phones and our like Apple watches that look like the stuff out of Star Trek. I don't I don't think our Apple watches would have looked like Apple watches if it hadn't been for Star Trek. I don't think, right, that science fiction then bizarrely sort of sets the terms of um, like the limits of imagination for science and technology. Um, and what's what's sort of most amazing is that it's often the case that what science fiction is trying to do is to offer like a cautionary tale about what would happen if you managed to create devices where everybody held in their pockets all the time, right? That tracked them constantly. And then, you know, tech is like, yeah, let's do it. Let's see how that happens. And the science fiction authors, authors are like, that was a cautionary tale. I wasn't trying to. Um, but I do think that the um, all of this is uh, enacted very straightforwardly in um, in Bezos's having taken Shatner up to space, right? Wanting to say like, let me do it for you for real, right? You taught me how to dream this. You taught me how to imagine that this might be possible. And now I've made it possible for you. And this kind of closes this circuit between science and science fiction. And again, this is why I love Shatner's like distraught reaction because it throws a um, like an affective wrench into what's supposed to be this totally closed loop between science fiction and science. Um, he's just like, this was this was terrible. Maybe we need to imagine differently. Maybe we need to think differently. Yeah. I mean, it was really striking to, to pick up on another point you made. I don't know if you listened to Jill Lepore's um, podcast series on Elon Musk, but she said something there like, you know, Elon Musk misses the point of sci-fi and she reads a passage from Douglas Adams, which is pretty like being pretty sarcastic about capitalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and the same thing too, as, as you pointed out, you know, like the metaverse, you know, Facebook's the metaverse is supposed to be a dystopia, but also like people like Peter Thiel who named Palantir after like what is a self-professed, like the villain's tool. Um, right. So I wonder like, how do you interpret or or think about the fact that they keep naming or like mimicking things which are like supposed to be critiqued in that science fiction. Is it as like Joel Poor says that Elon Musk is just sort of like missing it because he wants mm -hmm. to see it? Or or is it more like I always think with Peter Thiel, like I think he knows Palantir is the bad mm -hmm. guy's tool. Is it like a like a a deliberate strategy or is it reclaiming it like how, how do you how do you interpret I, I, <laughs> um if you teach um undergraduates you know that the last faculty to develop um in their during their time uh in college is um the faculty of attunement to irony right even when they figure out how to read these like really difficult texts um if somebody is joking or if somebody is making fun of something um they only start to figure that out about junior year where they can like pick up tone and they can pick up, right? Um, I think it takes a lot of training and a lot of work to be able to read texts in a way that attunes you to their um, their ironic dimensions, their satirical dimensions. Um, so, so I don't, 
that would that would be that would be the question, right? It, it, but I don't know that it matters all that much. It's either a deliberate neglect of the satirical tone, um, or it's just a, a, a an unknowingness, like an unattunement, a, a lack of attunement to the satirical tone. Um, either way, it's one of those moments where I think like this is one reason that it's really important to be trained in the humanities, and you cannot <laughs> learn how to understand text and you can learn to see a cautionary tale um, and to distinguish that from like a blueprint for uh, technological takeover. But it also, I mean, one could also flip it around and ask whether, um, for those of us who are trained in the humanities and the social sciences, whether irony is enough, whether it's sufficient as a critical tool. Um, if people aren't going to pick up on it or if people are going to um, ignore it deliberately in order to do precisely... <laughs> to enact precisely yeah. the sort of apocalyptic scenarios that we're imagining and critiquing. Um, do we need a different set of strategies from just irony? You know, I love John Stewart and John Oliver and that whole cohort as much as anybody else. But sometimes I worry it's um, it's like some liberal catharsis, like it makes you feel better. And then things just continue to escalate. And I, I wonder if there might be um, other other tools for critique than just sort of subtle irony and satire. Yeah. Or stop describing the dystopia. Like Stop describing that. Yeah. Stop <laughs> imagining the worst possible scenario and then enacting it and be like, don't do this. There you go. Yeah. 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 That's smart. That's smart. <laughs> right. Imagine better worlds. And this is part of the reason that I'm really drawn to. Um, the science fiction of um, of authors who are, who do allow themselves to imagine worlds differently and to build up sort of positive visions um, while they're also perhaps um, writing other scenarios that you know lambast negative visions. But like, can you can you actually start from scratch um, and create a society that you'd want to live in? Um, those those authors are pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why we call the anti dystopians. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I love anti dystopians. <laughs> Um, so to kind of go back on, on another point, I wonder, so like you, you say in the much, like you, you say in the book that Elon Musk sort of resembles a cult figure. And I think about that a lot in terms of like, also the way that Elon Musk deploys his fans on social media to like target and harass people in ways that do seem very much like cult, cult-like. Um, and and I don't know if you've seen, he's been tweeting like today and district almost having a, I don't know if he's having a breakdown, but it's definitely talking about, um, I think uh, other people have commented that Elon Musk might think that the world is a simulation. So it seems to mm -hmm. be either mm -hmm. trolling or also maybe saying something about his belief that the world is a simulation and that may be coming to an end. Uh, it's not clear, <laughs> but um, I wonder, is there then uh, a value in thinking of 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 Elon Musk and interpreting him um through a kind of a cult leader lens as well as like I wonder uh, you mentioned lo like long term is an effective altruism and uh, long termism that comes out of effective mm -hmm. altruism in the book and I wonder is there a value in thinking of them as re religious in in trying to to know how to react to them right um so I do think there's a value of understanding these kinds of movements as religious movements. Um, I don't know if there's um, a ton of value in um, labeling them with the term cult, just because that term tends to um, like nobody. Nobody is a member of a cult, right? You don't. Nobody says like, "Oh, I joined this real this cool cult the other day." Like, it's only a term <laughs> of abuse, right? It's only a term of denigration. Um, so. Uh, exposing something as a cult allows everybody who's on the inside to feel attacked and everybody who's on the outside um, to feel good about themselves because after all, they're not a member of that cult, right? Um, so, uh, but I, I I do think that it's helpful um, because the, the, the difference is that, uh, you know, religion, well, <laughs> for, for for anybody who, who um, doesn't just dismiss religion out of hand anyway, um, religion is the respectable one and cult is the unrespectable one, right? Um, see it though um as as uh as a religious movement i think is helpful because it pulls the um the curtain back a little you know like i think about toto at the end of um at the end of the wizard of oz when toto pulls the curtain back and he reveals that the great wizard of oz is just this guy who's um who's pulling levers um i think that to show that musk for example is behaving like a very old fashioned prophetic messiah 
um, takes the mystique away from the humanitarian promises, right? I'm saving humanity. Um, the technological sophistication. I have this huge freaking rocket, right? Um, and shows that like we have actually dealt with this kind of thing before. We've seen this sort of thing before. Um, and the reason that so many people are so taken by it is that even though the rocket is brand new and even though the idea of maybe actually going to Mars is new, um, the tech, the technology may be new, but the technique is very old. The technique is, again, um, this world is coming to an end, follow me to a new one. And I think that if you can see that that is uh, an old, again, like charismatic, messianic way of going about things, um, then you can decide, like, is this the prophet that I want to follow? It doesn't dismiss him out of hand. It doesn't say there's absolutely no way. It doesn't, um, you know, you know, unmask him as a cult leader who's going to destroy all these lives. It just um, shows that he has a position um, and he's using rhetorical strategies. And it's important to see what they are so that you can decide whether or not those are the ones you want to give your life to. It's interesting just to pick up on on something you said there about the role of apocalypse. I'm I'm putting writing a like paper right now on Jeff and Be- Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's kind of arguments for space. Um, and I've been really struck by um the way they invoke the coming apocalypse they have different mm-hmm. prescriptions but it but mm-hmm. it but both of them seem you know co- go to space because otherwise there's going to be apocalypse mm-hmm. um and it seems to track with a lot of other figures who are related to silicon valley in different ways so like peter Thiel, who who mm-hmm. is actually as you know is a uh, 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 genuinely religious figure like he is mm-hmm. he is christian and, and talks mm-hmm. about that um but same with some figures here in the uk like dominic cummings who who also talks about this like kind of apocalyptic uh world world ending and you need to make the world new as well as like Newt Gingrich in in the US um so i wonder like did do, do you see these apocalypse visions as linked is it as you said that like religion often talks about apocalypse or is there kind of a linking of these different uh worldviews and ideas like what explains the kind of <laughs> a thread of apocalypse through them all. So this is not the most straightforward reading of Genesis, um, but the reading that has taken hold in sort of history of ideas tells us that when God goes to create the world, God creates it out of nothing. Um, And if you study a little bit about the history of this idea that God creates out of nothing, what you really realizes that even though the Hebrew Bible seems to say that God creates out of this like uh, watery substance, um, a God who creates out of nothing seems to be more powerful than a God who creates out of something that's already existing. So this becomes the story that because we want a supremely powerful God, we decide that God has to create out of nothing. Um, And as the Western imperial powers that are guided by this story go to take over new land um, in Africa, in Australia, in the Americas, what they do is they declare those lands to be empty. They declare them to be nothing. They declare them to be. um, And then that allows them to build worlds anew rather than working with what's already there, build worlds anew um, in the image of Europe uh, because they are basically, the, the, the scholar of religion, Murcia Eliada, talks about um, the way that religious communities are always like repeating their creation stories. So if your creation story tells you you make stuff by creating out of nothing, then you make stuff by creating out of nothing. And just as that story reaffirms like the supremacy of an infinitely powerful creator, it also affirms the supremacy of the imperial nation. If the imperial nation comes in and just destroys everything and starts from scratch, that seems to um, lend incredible power to that nation. Um, So I think part of the reason that these very wealthy men are drawn to the story of apocalypse is that it like levels the ground almost like literally for them so that they can um, imagine creating something totally new, totally on their own, totally by themselves. If you think about the way that Musk went into Twitter and basically just annihilated, just destroyed Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, everybody's saying like, why would you do this? Why would you build like buy a company and destroy it? Well, if you're operating in this kind of mythic register, 
where the way to build an empire is to do it from absolutely nothing, then you go in and you destroy, you do like a scorched earth policy. And this reaffirms the supremacy of the person who can then create something out of what seems like nothing. Um, so I do think that there's a tre that there's this um, apocalyptic um, longing really among these guys, because then it allows them to justify these, um, these creations out of nothing, which make them look very powerful. So fascinating. I hadn't thought about Elon Musk and Twitter in that way, but it completely makes sense because I was the same sitting there watching. Like, yeah. why? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. You don't make money doing this. Why? No. Um, well, you don't make money by burning the entire American South, but it makes clear what the North is, right? Yeah. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. I wonder, I love when you talk about in, you know, in your book, kind of, kind of related to that point, you talk about, um, how uh like christian understanding of the earth as objects kind of transformed the way like pre-christian societies viewed the world um mm -hmm. in which uh, you know which kind of set the stage for capitalism and mm -hmm. and for property rights over objects by transforming things from spiritual beings or people um, into objects. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see that that link between religious uh, worldviews and capitalism and then kind of how that related to the, you know, historical terrestrial version of, of colonialism. Right. So I guess the point I keep trying to make is that the stuff that looks like it's totally secular actually has um, religious underpinnings in some kind of way and that it's important to pay attention to them. It's not just we don't just point it out to be like, ah, you're religious, um, but it helps us actually understand um, what those uh, things are doing. Um, so, for example, the idea that land can be owned, the idea that land contains resources, um, that, the, that the stuff within the earth, that the stuff within mountains, that the stuff within what we now, you know, what we have established as mines, um, those are those are resources. Those are there for human consumption. Um, these are not um, universal truths. Uh, they are not um, totally secular truths. Uh, they, in fact, have uh, a, a basis in um, in religious teaching. Um, and there is a historian of science and um, and philosophy, uh, Lynn White, who argues that in this regard, um, capitalism, which depends upon private, you know, land is private property and the extraction of resources and the maximization of profit through maximum extraction of resources, actually depends upon the Christian victory over what he calls paganism. Which is to say, as you've just said, um, the idea that um, the sacred is somehow located inside the earth within rocks and rivers and trees, that these things are um, not things, that they are beings, that they are people, that they are animated, that trees have spirits and rivers are people and uh, rocks uh, deserve respect because they they also mountains, right, are, are themselves persons. Um, what Lynn White argues is if you see the world as peopled, um, you need to uh, interact with it respectfully. <laughs> you need to ask it permission. You need to ask a tree permission if you can take its wood. Um, you need to uh, talk to the spirits of a forest. You need to maybe appease them by planting more trees. Um, you don't just get to take as much as you possibly can. You can take what you need, but you can't take as much as you possibly can. Um, so White is arguing that capitalism needed a change in metaphysic. It needed a change in the way that human beings related to the more than human world. Um, and again, this is White's argument. Um, it was Christianity that taught them that um, the sacred was actually in a totally different world, that um, God had created the earth, but God was not in the earth. And in fact, the place God is most um, tellingly and most uh, fully uh, is in human consciousness. Um, so humans are made in the image of God. Nothing else is made in the image of God. Therefore, humans have the role of God on earth. And there's that terrible line in Genesis that gets interpreted very badly through the history of of, uh, of capitalism, which is to say, um, dominate the earth and subdue it, right? That humans are allowed to do whatever it is they want to an inanimate, a uh, now inanimate earth. Okay. Um, I do want to make it very clear that this is the kind of, this teaching takes root in the kind of Christianity that teams up initially with the Roman Empire and then with European imperialism in the 15th century um, to take over the world. Um, but it does not mean that this is uh, some sort of like essential Christian teaching. There are all sorts of Christian communities that do not um, 
relate to the earth this way, um, that relate to the earth in the um, genre of, of following the lead of St. Francis, um, relate to the earth as sister to the moon, as sister to the sun, as brother, um, to all creatures as brothers and sisters, to, again, rocks and rivers and trees as siblings um, and family members. Um, and you can find these kinds of Christian teachings all over the place. Um, unfortunately, the kind of Christian teaching that, again, teamed up with empire, then wove itself so fully into the logic of capitalism and the logic of European imperialism um, that it sort of lost its Christianness and just integrated itself into those logics so that it looks like when you're just talking about politics or you're just talking about economics or you're just talking about science, um, you're using neutral values. Um, but these actually, these values have a really long history. That's so fascinating. So you, I think... For, for me, at least, I wonder if you agree that it seems like religion's playing a similar role in, in space colonization, not in terms of like actual missionaries going to the moon or something, but right. in terms of how it's how it's thinking about right. space. The question of like where we set up a church on the moon or like which direction <laughs> Mecca is or when the Sabbath is on Mars, these are all like they're they're interesting, but those are not like the really pressing questions. The pressing questions for me are what are we allowed to do to the moon? What are we allowed? Are we allowed to? Is it all right to sink mines on the moon? Is it okay to beat the crap out of asteroids? Right. Like if you if you watch any mission that goes to an asteroid, the way that we learn about an asteroid is just by like beating the hell out of it. Is it okay? To, you know, to mine asteroids? Is it okay to? Um, and the 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 only reason that it seems like these are ridiculous questions, and this is often the place that people will sort of hop off the train of. <laughs> what, what what I'm talking about where they're like, oh, come on, we really, you think we owe something to an asteroid? Like, come on, it's a floating rock. Like you're an absolute lunatic. Um, but the only reason that it seems that absurd is that we've gotten to a point of thinking of rocks as things that are just there for us to make money from. Of thinking of earth as of land as something that's just there to provide us stuff for, um, you know, increased human comfort and for financial improvement. Um, that's the only reason that it seems like such a ridiculous question. It wouldn't seem like a ridiculous question if we were still in the early modern period trying to determine whether or not it was okay to mine the earth, right? Or whether earth herself um, was a sacred being uh, worthy of better treatment than um, sinking of, of, of mines and the, the taking of her treasures. These were enormous debates um, throughout the 13th, 14th, 15th century that we've just sort of forgotten about. We don't teach our, our students about it. We don't teach our students about, you know, land enclosure and primitive accumulation um, because we've just decided that this is just the way things the way things are. Um, so in that sense, questions about like ethical behavior in space seem to be absolutely ridiculous because there are no humans there. Right. Um, and there seem to be no animals there. Um, so it seems like it's just sort of open season and we can do whatever we want. Yeah. And it seems like it's the same logic that also is justifying and causing the climate crisis on earth so it seems in my mind it seems impossible to disentangle the two that you have to uh think about that idea of how we treat the earth in order to think about how we treat space as well well right and if we can really we, if we if most of us can agree including bezos and musk right if we can agree that these practices on earth have not been good for earth then what makes us think that exporting them into the solar system, the rest of the is going to be good for those planetary? But I can't even imagine it. It's at this point, like, I, I, I can't even see from the other perspective. I'm like, why <laughs> would you think that this way of going about things is going to be better when we take it somewhere else? And the, you know, and the response would have to be, if, if the interlocutor were being um, honest, would have to be, look, we need more money. <laughs> like, we need more stuff. Like, if we are going, going to keep living this way, if we are going to keep being this comfortable, um, if we're going to keep using this much energy, we got to have more stuff and Earth is running out of stuff and there's more stuff out there. So we we got to go get it. <laughs> yeah, logic goes on yeah. and on and on. Just more stuff for more stuff so we can have more, more stuff. stuff for the sake of more stuff. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, but we feel as well, I mean, uh, a figure that another figure, so not not Musk and Bezos, but a historical figure who you talk about in the book um, is Werner von Braun. Yeah. Um, was, you know, a member of the Nazi regime who's testing rockets using slave labor and then get, you know, is in the US and then partners up with Disney and Space Mountain. But I had missed um, <laughs> you know, all this 
crazy. Um, what a what a strange amalgamation of of nouns. Um, but uh, I had missed and uh, until I read your book that he'd become an evangelical Christian and the sort of like mm-hmm. celebrity proponent of of uh, the space here. So I wonder because I think most people when think who even think about space expansion and space colonization don't know about Werner von Braun. So I wonder if you could talk to uh, a little bit about him and then. I don't know if you know this, but I, I heard a, a rumor, and I've never been able to substantiate it, that Elon Musk has a conference room named after him at SpaceX. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I have no idea, but it absolutely wouldn't surprise me. There's a there's a uh, a Ferris, an aspirational Ferris wheel shaped um, space hotel that is going to be named after Werner von Braun. No. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. They're gonna like. The, can you imagine like, hey, honey, want to go to the Werner von Braun <laughs> hotel in orbit? for a couple of days and have unreliable access to oxygen. Woo. Like I just, I don't, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me, but um, yeah. So Werner von Braun um, was a rocket scientist, a uh, German rocket scientist whose uh, rockets, uh, you know, destroyed um, untold numbers of uh, towns in cities in Europe um, during the second world war. Um he was part of the uh, then secret CIA mission called Operation Paperclip uh, to go in and extract the top scientific minds out of um, conquered Germany in 1945 um, and bring them back to the U.S. and offer them amnesty in exchange for their scientific knowledge. Um, so he came to the U.S. through oper- Operation uh, Paperclip. Uh, was denazified on American soil and started designing rockets for the U.S. instead. <laughs> As NASA starts taking taking uh, hold in the 50s, he's designing rockets for NASA. Um, yeah, there's a there's a whole amazing story uh, that Catherine Newell uh, details in her book, Destined for the Stars, about his cooperation with Disney. It's like Disney wants to figure out what Tomorrowland is going to look like. And so Disney gets von Braun, who's got this rocket that people aren't paying attention attention to and Disney makes von Braun make it like a prettier rocket and makes it the prototype of Tomorrowland and then NASA's like hey that looks like a nice rocket so talk about like the feedback loop between science and science fiction or even fantasy right this this happens here with Disney and von Braun um, anyway, while he's here on American soil getting denazified he also becomes an evangelical Christian um, and he uh, becomes convinced that the manifest destiny the uh, manifest destiny again this idea that um uh that God wanted uh, European-descended, light-skinned Americans to occupy the entirety of the North American continent, um, that their destiny was manifest. It was clear, um, and it was chosen uh, chosen by God. That manifest destiny was now ex- um, expanding itself, extending itself vertically into the stars, and that the same divine hand that had called white Americans across the whole uh, continent was now calling them into outer space. Um, von Braun also imagined um, that it would be important, certainly, to Christianize any aliens that we might meet. Um, he he thought about this. Um, but some kind of combination of um, his like background in empire building his training in the Nazi doctrine of Lebensraum or like getting more room for the conquering people to live in, right, that had sort of taken over Poland, um, his uh, rebirth in America, his rebirth birth as a an evangelical Christian, um, and his uh, extraordinary background in technoscience <laughs> allowed him to produce this, what's known as the von Braun paradigm, um, where he said, all right, this is what we have to do. This is the way we do it. We start sending rockets up uh, toward the moon, and then we go around the moon, and then we land on the moon, and then we establish a base on the moon, and then we establish a series of bases on the moon, and then we need to figure out how to get something in orbit around the moon, like a command module that can um, get anywhere that it needs to get around the moon. From there, once we've really established a permanent human presence on the moon, we can figure out how to get to farther away cosmic bodies. We can figure out how to get to asteroids and figure out what they're doing, what's in them, whether they might come get us. Um, And we can eventually figure out how to go to Mars, our nearest um, cosmic neighbor. Um, Well, the the nearest one that... um, Look, it's just too hot. Venus is just too hot. Like you just, you can't, you can't go to Venus. So you go, so you go to Mars. Um, and, you know, and then from Mars, we can get out to the to the rest of the solar system and eventually beyond the solar system. Um, this like staged um, 
approach to the exploration of outer space was established by von Braun and honestly still remains the paradigm that we use today. Um, so in that sense, he's really become the like godfather, grandfather figure of the space program. It doesn't surprise me at all that um, his name gets used in these very um, he, he's 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 really a hero. I mean, uh, Walt Disney brings him on to his like children's shows to be like, show me your rocket, show how it's going to work, show how we're going to write. Um, he very quickly becomes a kind of American hero and he seems to have remained one. Um, one thing that I find really uh, excited or exciting is that um, Catherine Newell, again, who who um, unearthed, at least for me, this this story of the collaboration between Disney and von Plan, um, recently ju like just wrote a review of this book that I just wrote. Um, and she actually <laughs> uses Werner von Braun uh, to critique Elon Musk, right? Um, and to say that, like, even Werner von Braun, this born-again Christian with, like, <laughs> Nazi roots, said, we don't have the right to exploit the solar system in an untrammeled manner, and has him, like, critique Musk at the end of it, which I think is fantastic. Oh, it's 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 so crazy though because oh there was some news article that came up you know with like uh some nasa official saying like we're gonna have a permanent human settlement on mm -hmm. the moon in this decade and it really does seem to be these ideas of questionable origins um in practice right, right. well and the thing is that like the thing that i find a little bit um perplexing very perplexing is that for von Braun, it was clear why we were doing it. We were doing it for American national glory and for the conversion of any aliens. Like, that was why. For Musk, it's clear why we're doing it. We're doing it because humans are about to become extinct and we need new places to live. For Bezos, it's clear why we're doing it. We're doing it because there's an energy crisis. We need more energy, so we got to get out there. I can't discern a vision from NASA at all. Like, why? Why are we... The Artemis mission is launching. Why is it launching? Well, to put a woman and a person of color on the moon. Why? Why are you doing that? Because for... So that a woman and a person of color will be on the moon. Like, they, they, these... It, yeah. it sort of grab the loftiest, nicest sounding, most, like, equity and inclusion bells ringing um, line they can, but they don't actually tell us what we're doing it for. Um, so then you have to guess and then you have to kind of piece it together. Um, but it's, 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 it's in there somewhere, but it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's subtle. <laughs> it's subtle. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to me. It's bipartisan too, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people think about Trump and space force and ha ha ha, but mm -hmm. obviously like a lot of the, the legal changes around like asteroid mining happened under Obama. And under then Obama, even yeah. still, Joe Biden is is you know going around to American allies and other states trying to get them to like sign the updated Artemis Accords Artemis or whatever. Accords. So it's yeah, it's it, it it's really striking how it didn't end with with Trump. It wasn't just a manifestation of that. It is really um, uh, but again, like why? <laughs> why? why I know it is this doing? remarkably bipartisan program, um, and I don't know if everybody's got the same motivations. You know, there are some. Um, scholars who will say that, look, Democrats usually support space exploration for the sake of the advancement of science and knowledge, and Republicans tend to advance it for the sake of um, militarism, right? That, as Dwight Eisenhower said, like, the the best military position is off the planet, because <laughs> if you're off the planet, you can target anything you want, right? You can get a missile anywhere you want to get it if you're off planet. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that that's that I, I, I'd i love to be able to say that there are people in Congress who are really um, advocating for space exploration um, on behalf of like the nerds among us who really want to know like what it's like on Mars. But I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that there is a tacit understanding um, that if um, if China and Russia are racing to establish bases on the moon, we need to race to establish base on the, bases on the moon. It is um, really a military project um, that now has seems to have some kind of economic uh, promise too. There's this military economic project um, that for some reason, NASA feels funny about calling a military economic project. You know, in the in the 60s, JFK was like, hey, if we don't get there, the Soviets are going to get there. So we got to get there because we want to beat the Soviets. And that was, you know, that so it was a yeah. political military um, vision that he set forth very clearly that everybody could hear. And of course, it had these like lofty ideological flourishes, but it was clear that it was a military mission. Now that um, that that uh, purpose has gone so far underground uh, that it's hard even to hear it. And so you just hear like, we're going to space so we can go to space. We're, we're, but it, 
clearly we want to go to space because we want to make sure um, that we have uh, the sort of optimal military position globally. And that's that's where it is. Yeah. I wonder then kind of kind of thinking about um, uh, ways to resist space colonization, both from states and corporations. Do you see the role of religion, whether it's Christian or other religions, um, or religious communities as playing any role in resisting space colonization? I would love for religious communities to to, to res- play roles in resisting space colonization. Um, as you may know, uh, there was a, a white paper co-authored by um, Frank Tavares, Chanda, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, um, mm-hmm. Uh, Lucien Walkowitz, uh, Natalie Trevino, um, and uh, they recommended that NASA um, let communities, particularly uh, communities of color, mar- marginalized communities, know what they're up to in space and receive community input. This was the um, this was the big recommendation. And of course, NASA has let us know what they're up to. They haven't told us why, again, and I think that that would be very helpful. They've let us know what they're up to, um, but they haven't um, really sought community input. They haven't sought um, the advice of elders in all sorts of communities who might say like, huh, maybe this isn't the best way to go about exploring space. Maybe there are other ways instead. Um, and again, I think just including a woman and a person of color who might or may not be the same person on the mission to do the thing that you were going to do in the first place doesn't take equity and inclusion nearly far enough. If you really want to do it, start from scratch, talk to community leaders and say, hey, in your tradition, um, how do we interact respectfully with land? In your tradition, how do we take what we need without taking more than we need? Um, how do we um, steward lands? How do we like, make amends for what it is we're taking and make sure that we are um, ensuring um, sustainable practice, um, not just sustainable for us and our economy, but sustainable for the land that we are traveling to? Um, and it would be amazing. I mean, even, again, I, I imagine the conversations that that um, NASA might have uh, with indigenous leaders here. I imagine conversations that NASA might have um, with um, traditional caretakers of land. Um, but even if NASA would just listen to the Pope, that would be great. Like he And he's easy to find. And he writes long treatises saying like, stop treating the earth this way. Uh, it would be fantastic if they would listen to him too. Um, so I don't, it, it doesn't seem impossible. It doesn't feel impossible to me. I just don't know. I don't know how you get such a conversation going. Um, but I think that it would be very helpful um, to listen from people to people who understand how to live with, on, and as land um without destroying it there are all sorts of people out there so kind of in the spirit of the 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 anti-dystopians and to get that conversation going something i ask um all my first-time guests which is if you had a piece of advice that you give to anyone so it can be the pope it could be elon musk it could be nasa um so a piece of advice or recommendation uh what would it be i would have um impassioned requests um, two major impassioned. Can I have two? You can have two. Yes. Of okay. Okay. <laughs> two impassioned requests. Um, one to Joe Biden, and the impassioned request would be: please suspend the 2015 Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act um, that allows American citizens, by which we mean corporations, um, to take whatever we want um, from space. And please instead run this by the United Nations where it actually belongs. Um, It is not appropriate to be making unilateral legislation. It is not appropriate to be making bilateral legislation a la the Artemis Accords um, that get sort of 12 partners on board. Um, The appropriate place to discuss um, the uh, exploitation of space resources is actually at the United Nations. Um, please take it there instead. Um, and uh, and to NASA, I would plead with them to get out of bed with SpaceX. <laughs> right. That I, I, I don't I understand that SpaceX offers a cheaper, higher risk um lower cost, faster way of doing what it wants to do, but um at what cost? I I don't um I, I think it would be very helpful uh to to um and, and for any reason, for any reason, if you wanna 
if you have to, you know, pull a Me Too here and say, look at what Elon Musk has done to his employees. Um, is this the kind of person you want to be partnering with um, to uh, to launch and sustain this mission? Um, you could do it that way. You could talk about labor practices and what a terrible um, boss he is. Um, or you could talk about, you know, the the plundering of the cosmos and try to appeal to those nerds at NASA who don't want to see the plunder, the cosmos plundered. They just want to like, they just want to understand, right? Try to appeal to their inner nerd and appeal to their inner um, justice seekers um, and ask them to, to, to stop, stop working with SpaceX. Thank you.